Welcome, Litigation Nation. I'm your host, Jack Sanker. Today's story is Roe versus Wade, a roughly 50-year-old decision that affirmed the right to abortion at the federal level to citizens in the United States. Are we going to talk about the opinion that just leaked overturning Roe? Yep. Are we going to talk about what the opinion actually says? Nope. There's Appellate Lawyers and SCOTUS podcast you can check out if that's what you're looking for. But we are going to talk about the leak, what it means, why the leak itself is important, and what overturning Roe means as a practical matter. Here's what you need to know. First, so we're all on the same page here. The leaked opinion is a five-justice majority draft opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade if it were implemented. Conservative Justices Thomas Gorsuch, Amy Comey Barrett, Kavanaugh, and the author of the opinion, Alito, drafted an opinion that would overturn Roe versus Wade, which would then allow states to pass laws outlawing abortion if they wanted to. We have not seen drafts of anything from Chief Justice Roberts, along with the three more liberal justices. The opinion was allegedly from February of 2022, and it was just leaked this past week on May 2nd. As of the time of the recording of this show, we don't know who leaked it. So that's what we're talking about today. Up first, the leak itself. Has anything like this ever happened before? Pundits from across the political spectrum have been calling this unprecedented, a breach of trust, a slight to the institution of the high court. Some of that may be true, but has anything like this ever happened before? Kind of. From a PolitiFact article, quote, a Supreme Court clerk, for example, leaked the original Roe ruling to a Time magazine reporter, resulting in an article about the decision hitting newsstands hours before the court officially announced its ruling. That's interesting. Apparently, the original Roe opinion was leaked to the press. Going back to the piece, quote, still, Lucas Powell Jr., a Supreme Court historian and professor of government at the University of Texas at Austin School of Law, said that he could count on the number of significant Supreme Court leaks probably without going to his second hand to get more fingers. He said he'd been racking his brain for examples, but to the best of my knowledge, there's never been a leak like this one. Later, the piece cites another example. Jonathan Peters, a media law professor at the University of Georgia, said he could only think of one other time in modern history that the draft of an opinion reached a member of the press before the opinion was released. Now, according to him, this happened in 1981, when UPI reporter Elizabeth Olson obtained a document that, quote, appeared to show in advance the outcome of a sex discrimination case, Peters says. Olson wrote a story about it, but UPI's Washington bureau chief chose not to run it on the grounds that the organization couldn't confirm the document's authenticity. When he, this is the bureau chief, was later asked about it, he characterized the document as eight pages, unsigned, undated, and what appeared to be a dissenting opinion, Peters explained. He said it came into Olson's possession accidentally and that it was attached mistakenly to other material that the court had distributed to Olson. Okay, so there have been accidental leaks in the past, and the original Roe decision was actually leaked to the press before the opinion came out. So this kind of has happened before, although it is still striking in that practicing attorneys, observers of the court, political pundits can't think of any good examples of what this specifically is, which seems to be a politically motivated leak of a draft opinion so as to stir up political backlash. So the Supreme Court sits in kind of a jurisdictional bubble. It kind of reminds me a bit of how the Vatican City is its own country sitting within the larger country of Italy. Of course, the Supreme Court being located in Washington, D.C. is 
surrounded by and subject to the Capitol Police and uh, and the local D.C. police and everything else. However, in terms of its internal conduct, the Supreme Court is by and large mostly self-governing. And the chief executive administrator, if you will, of whatever that bureaucracy is, is the Supreme Court Marshal. Glenn Fine from the Brookings Institutes writes this about the Supreme Court Marshal, quote, as described in a court press release announcing her appointment last year, the Marshal serves as the court's chief security officer, facilities administrator, and contracting executive, managing approximately 260 employees, including the Supreme Court police force, which provides security for the justices, court staff, visitors, the building and surrounding grounds. The marshal will call the Supreme Court to order in argument sessions, maintaining order and decorum during the court's proceedings, unquote. So the Supreme Court marshal is a bit like the CEO of the Supreme Court. Going back to the piece, quote, but the marshal's office does not conduct these types of sensitive leak investigations. And the court does not appear to have a cadre of seasoned investigators who handle complex investigations regularly. While Chief Justice Roberts' statement provided no details on how the investigation would be conducted, according to press reports, he has rejected suggestions that he ask for investigative aid from the DOJ or from the FBI, unquote. So as it is right now, the Supreme Court doesn't seem to be equipped to handle something like this internally. Where do they turn at this point? It seems like Justice Roberts is intent on handling it himself. And while he's probably competent, he's no detective. All of this makes the refusal of aid from the FBI and the DOJ even more interesting. So could the federal government force its way into the issue and conduct its own investigation? I think probably there are enough federal statutes implicated here that the FBI could plausibly claim jurisdiction. Maybe Congress could too. Still, it seems like the court wants to keep this internal at this point, a decision that could be criticized if it does not identify the culprit. So what does this all mean? I've spent a lot of time pondering this past week over this, and I'm going to make certain assumptions here too. Uh, I'm assuming that the leaker is a clerk or at least someone with at least partial legal training because like a janitor or a receptionist isn't generally, though I could be wrong, going to have the interest, intrigue, or motivation to read the 80-page opinion identifying why it's important and then risking their job to put it out. I think we could assume that the leaker is probably a lawyer. So the fact that there really hasn't been leaks like this in the past raises the question, why not? Pundits and critics this week have been discussing all of the traditions of the court and seemingly uh, implying that the Supreme Court's deliberative process is supposed to remain a secret. Is there really a strong tradition that the court's deliberations should be private? Here's a thought. SCOTUS clerks are the definition of careerist meritocrats, and I don't mean that in a bad way or in a way that anyone should try to rebut that, but SCOTUS clerks are generally A students, academic strivers who usually end up at top flight law firms or on the federal judiciary themselves at some point. So isn't it likely that the tradition against leaking here is really more of a byproduct of these clerks just protecting their future job prospects? Don't you think that whomever leaked this draft is going to face huge consequences in their legal career, for example? Do I think that the justices having anonymity during their deliberative process is a good thing? At the surface level, yes, definitely. I think that the justice should be able to think out loud, be able to kick around different ideas, adjust their opinions, shift on issues, etc., without external political pressure. Going one level deeper, though, aren't the opinions going to be public anyways? 
the public has to deal with the results regardless. I know the process is supposed to be apolitical and the justice is impartial. Whether you buy that or not is up to you. But even assuming that they are, why not let the public see how the sausage is made in that regard? The counterargument to that is that public backlash would then influence opinions. Okay, but aren't you then admitting that the justices are capable of being persuaded by political concerns then? And they're not just, as Justice Roberts said during his confirmation hearing, quote, calling balls and strikes. Put another way, if justices are being persuaded or dissuaded from going through with a certain ruling by, say, actual mass protests or maybe even riots, which we might start to see now, couldn't they then be persuaded by the thought or the expectation of mass protests and riots? The riots wouldn't have to actually happen to sway the imaginations of the justice, right? Moreover, if those things are persuasive to justices, why not certain economic outcomes? Why not certain social outcomes, such as the inavailability of abortions in America? So that's why the leak to me is the most fascinating part of this whole escapade from an institutional standpoint. It does call into question the integrity of the court, but it also call, calls into question our expectations for the court. Should this process be public? I still think generally no, but I will admit that the reason I think it should not be public is because I don't want public opinion swaying constitutional decisions, which necessarily requires me to admit that public opinion can and does sway the decision-making process of the justices, which then requires me to admit that SCOTUS decisions are inherently political in nature. So even defending the court's anonymous drafting and deliberation process, which seems to be the default position for most lawyers, myself included, still leads to the line of thinking that, I don't know, undermines the supposedly apolitical nature of the court in the first place. So in that regard, Joe Patrice wrote the following at Above the Law. Quote, everyone knew exactly what was coming since at least December. Why shouldn't the public have a sense of the decision-making process? Other political actors have to conduct their business to the public eye, provided it's not classified, of course. Why not these? It's a really good question that lawyers are just going to ignore while they play up how gobsmacked they are about the leak because lawyers get off on this stuff. I mean, they get off on peddling the secret knowledge to prove that they're the court knowers that everyone else isn't, unquote. I know that's cynical, but I think there's something to that, frankly. Lawyers love maintaining the mystification of their own practice. More than anything, legal pundits, like myself, like maintaining the idea that only their insight, connections, and exclusionary experiences can be trusted when evaluating or predicting what the court might do. I think a lot of backlash to the opinion being leaked is the folks who are in the industry of predicting or speculating about what the court might do, having the rug pulled out from under them by virtue of the leaked opinion. So all that said, let's talk about the practical implications of what this decision might do. And without offering an opinion on whether this is good or bad, because you know I'm not going to stake an opinion on something this controversial in public, here is what we know will likely happen if and when Roe is overturned, whether it's this decision or something else. And if you haven't seen the opinion we're talking about today, it essentially returns the ability to ban or allow abortions back to the state. So here's what each state has or how it will handle this based on what we know. Currently, 16 states have passed laws explicitly protecting right to abortions. Washington, Oregon, California, Nevada, Colorado, Illinois, New York, Vermont, Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Jersey, Delaware, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Rhode Island, Hawaii, and Maine. 
14 states have either passed post-Roe abortion bans or so-called trigger bans that are set to go into effect the minute that Roe is officially overturned, which would effectively ban all abortions in their states. Idaho, Wyoming, Utah, the Dakotas, Texas, Iowa, Louisiana, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Ohio, Georgia, and South Carolina. Eight states have pre-Roe abortion laws that have generally gone unenforced but may go into effect once Roe is overturned. Wisconsin, Michigan, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Alabama, Mississippi, West Virginia, and North Carolina, and 12 states have no explicit laws on the books either way. So if and when this decision comes down the way that it might, that's what we're talking about here. We're talking about a scenario where roughly a third of the states in the union immediately have banned all abortions and likely a small minority will maintain the ability to get an abortion at all, something like between 14 and maybe 20 states. So that's the practical implication at play here. Now, I'll end with a brief discussion of who is actually typically getting abortions in the United States. Since my preconception of who the typical abortion patient was turned out to be completely wrong, and maybe some of you will have your expectations changed by this as well. This is from an article from the New York Times in December of 2021, so it's pretty up to date. Apparently, the typical abortion patient has already had at least one child, which I certainly would not have guessed. The typical abortion patient is also in her late 20s, which again is something I would not have thought of. Most abortion patients have attended some college. Most are very poor. Most are unmarried. The majority of abortions actually occur within the first six weeks, and most abortion patients are seeking their first abortions. So the mean abortion patient in this country is an unmarried late 20s single mother who has gone to at least some college but is still very poor. That is the demo that is most likely to be impacted by the overturning of Roe, whether you think that's good or bad. But speaking for myself, at least, that is certainly not what I expected. Thanks, everyone. That's the show. Reminder, new episodes every Tuesday, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, etc. I imagine that we'll probably be revisiting this row discussion in the next couple of weeks, considering the amount of attention that the leak, as well as the opinion itself, are getting. Otherwise, we'll return to our normally scheduled programming next week, and I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Tuesday.